people have a fascination with glory, don't they? I mean, just think about all of the stories that we, that we read and we love, be them from the classics or even from modern literature. A lot of these stories have as its motif this hero or kind of what's popular today, an anti-hero. The, these people who are on a quest to do something that brings them some sort of glory. And these are stories that, that we just eat up. We love to read and we love to hear. People have a fascination with glory. I mean, it's even, it's even represented in TV shows. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. Uh, American Pickers and Antiques Roadshow. If you guys know what I'm talking about here. So in, in American Pickers, you got these two guys, uh, Mike and Frank, although Frank I don't think is part of the show anymore. But you get Mike and Frank, these two guys who drive across the United States digging through barns and salvage yards and anywhere that junk piles up in search of that one glorious item, right? They sift and they sift sometimes days on end in search of that one item that they can bring home and display in their store so they can show people its glory or that somebody else can buy and enjoy it. Once they find that one glorious item, they leave all of the unwanted and the undesirable and the inglorious behind. It's the same thing with Antiques Roadshow, isn't it? Although instead of sifting through other people's junk, people are sifting through their own junk in the hopes of finding that one item that people then can then take to an appraiser and they call this item glorious. I mean, if you've ever watched the show, people bring things like doorstops and doorknobs and watches and clocks and quilts, all in the hopes that it's that one glorious item. They sift through the entirety of their house, all of the junk they're in, and they leave all of the junk, all of the unwanted, undesirable, unnecessary behind and bring that one thing that they think is glorious. People have a fascination with glory, and so do we. Which is why an account like the Transfiguration is so appealing to us. Jesus standing on a mountainside, appearance changed, clothes dazzling white, two men, prominent Old Testament figures, standing there on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, right? The veil finally pulled back, people being able to see the glory of God with their own two eyes without instantly having death brought upon their heads. You get to see the glory of God in the transfiguration. Our fascination with glory leads us to be fascinated with this account, but, but we must be careful with this fascination with glory because it can so easily lead us down a path that is very destructive. For our fascination with glory can, can bleed into our understanding of, of what Christ has revealed about himself and, and about the lives that he has called us to live as his disciples. When this fascination with glory bleeds into those things, we, we tend to act like, like Mike and Frank or like the people preparing for Antiques Roadshow. We tend to, to sift through all of the unwanted and, and unnecessary and unattractive things about Christ and about about our lives as his disciples and leave that all behind in favor of the things that we would call attractive, that we would call desirable, that we would call glorious. Right? Because a, a Jesus, a Jesus who, is, who has his glory fully on display all the time, a Jesus who, who does nothing but preach and teach, who love one another and, and be at peace, a Jesus who, who is always just Mr. Nice Guy, that kind of Jesus is a lot more glorious and attractive than a Jesus who, who suffers, than a Jesus who dies, than a Jesus who is rejected and, and tells you that you'll be rejected. 
a Christian life, a Christian life that, that is all about health, wealth, and prosperity, which, by the way, nowhere in Scripture is the Christian life Jesus called to, calls you to, described in that manner. Unfortunately, though, that's, that's taught under the banner of Christendom, health, wealth, and prosperity. But a, a, being called to a Christian life like that seems a lot more glorious than a Christian life that, that is all self-denial, cross-bearing, suffering. And we understand that because we are a people. We are a people who, on this side of heaven, struggle with the duality of our hearts. The fact that we are sinner saints and we recognize that there are times in our lives when our fascination with glory does this to Jesus and does this to the teachings that he wants lived out in our lives. Right? We love when Jesus tells us about his forgiveness and his grace and the everlasting glory that we will experience on account of everything he's done for us. We love these things and we cling to these glorious teachings, but, but how quickly do we eschew the self-denial and suffering? the cross bearing. We love the gospel of Jesus, the good news of, of sins forgiven and heaven opened because that is a glorious message. But we don't really like the law because the law tells us that we're guilty sinners in need of a savior. Very rarely do people call the law glorious when it calls us out on some sort of sinful flaw in our hearts. We recognize that, that a fascination with glory can lead us down a pretty destructive and dangerous path. We recognize that a fascination with glory can lead us to think that and to want, really, all the glory with none of the hardship. To want all of the glory that God promises without any of the things that come before it, all of the glory with none of the suffering. What we end up wanting is, is really what the Apostle Peter wants. Which is why on Transfiguration Sunday, Jesus has to show Peter and us that the only way to glory is, is actually through suffering, both for him and for us. About eight days before the Transfiguration, Jesus um, is speaking to his disciples and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is where, where Peter makes his bold confession, right? The one he's pretty well known for. You are the Christ, the Messiah of God. But after Peter uttered that statement, Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, actually gives his disciples the implications of what that title actually means. And it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the chief priests and teachers of the law, to be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. For God's plan of salvation to be enacted, it necessitated that the Lamb of God suffer before he experiences glory. This is the way that it was to be for Jesus, for our plan of salvation. This is the model for the kingdom of God. And yet, Peter objects to this whole plan from Jesus. Never, Lord. You remember this? Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Jesus, you're thinking about this, or you're thinking about this all wrong. You're the Messiah. I just called you this. To you belongs glory and glory alone. Enough of this suffering and dying thing. That, that's not for you. And what does Jesus do to Peter when he he talks like this. He calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're thinking about this from, from, a, per, from an earthly perspective. You want all of the glory, but none of the suffering. You, you want things to be the way that, that you want them to be because you have this fascination with glory. But, but Peter, it doesn't work that way. In order for God's plan of salvation and 
for you to be saved and for you and me to be saved, it necessitates suffering and then glory. And Jesus then takes this a step further with Peter and the rest of those disciples. And he explains that this model is not just of suffering, then glory is not just for Jesus. It's for anyone who wants to be one of Jesus' disciples, that they must suffer and then experience glory. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For anyone who wants to save his life, experience glory now. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it, suffer for an eternity. But anyone who loses his life on account of me, who suffers now, they will save it. They will experience glory in the future. This is the model for Christ's kingdom, suffering, then glory. And of course, Peter has an issue with this, right? Because Peter's got a fascination with glory. He wants to see a more visibly glorious Christ, not a Christ who suffers and dies. He, as a disciple, wants to be more visibly glorious, not experience self-denial and, and suffering and cross-bearing. This is the way that Peter was thinking leading up to the transfiguration, leading up to being on that mountain with Jesus. And understanding that helps you to understand a little bit why Peter says what he says when he sees what he sees on the mountain. Eight days after Peter makes that confession, Jesus takes the inner circle of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, takes them up a mountain, and these disciples are tired, so they fall asleep. And of course, when they fall asleep, there's a miracle that's going on. Jesus' face changes appearances. His clothes gleam white like a, like a bright flash of lightning. Now, all of a sudden, the veil that had hidden the glory of God for millennia, because people can't look at the glory of God and live, now, all of a sudden, that veil is pulled back, and people can see that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah of God, true God from true God, that he is who he says he is. And after his appearance changes, suddenly two men stand talking with Jesus. They appear in glorious splendor. Moses, the, the prominent Old Testament lawgiver and deliverer, and then Elijah, the great prophet of God. What are these three people engaged in a conversation about? They're engaged in a heavenly conversation about Jesus' exodus, about his departure, his suffering and death, which he is about to, to, to fulfill in Jerusalem. And while these disciples are all sleeping, they, and this miracle happens, they finally wake up. They see it. They see that the veil is pulled back and they see the glory of Jesus. They hear that heavenly conversation echoing around that mountaintop. And what does Peter do? Well, it seems as though Peter looks at Jesus' glory and thinks that Jesus has taken his advice that he gave eight days earlier. Never, Lord. Suffering and death, never. That's never for you. And then he looks up and he sees Jesus' glory. Oh. Maybe he did listen to me. All glory, no suffering, Jesus. And then this is kind of what leads Peter to say what he says. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Or master, excuse me. It's good for us to be here. Let us build three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But I love Luke's parenthetical remark here because it tells you a lot about what's going on with Peter. Luke says, he didn't know what he was saying. Peter didn't understand the implications of what he was seeing. He didn't understand the implications of, of what he was hearing. He was so fixated on the glory that he saw that he kind of spoke out of ignorance. He didn't know. And as they're staring at this glory, suddenly a, a cloud envelops them all, and Peter, James, and John are terrified. 
All of a sudden, the glory that they had seen had disappeared. Moses and Elijah no longer there. They can't see a thing. And then suddenly that voice from that cloud thunders, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Cloud disappears. Moses and Elijah gone. Glory no more. They see Jesus in the lowly form of a servant. It's just Jesus and Peter, James, and John. And the account of the transfiguration can seem a little bit enigmatic. It can seem hard for us as 21st century Christians, nearly 2,000 years after this event took place, to find some sort of connection, right? Some sort of application to what's going on here. But that's, I guess, why you have a pastor and why you have sermons on Sunday mornings, right? To help connect those dots. Well, those two men who were, who were standing there on the mountain with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, they have a whole lot in common, not only with Peter, but with you and me. Moses and Elijah, like Peter, were fascinated by glory. In fact, both of these men throughout their, or at some point in their earthly ministries, both asked the Lord for more visible signs of his glory. As Moses is standing on Mount Sinai, not long before uh, the account that we read this morning from Exodus 34, Moses is trying to figure out how he's going to lead this obstinate and stiff-necked people of Israel, especially in light of the sin of the golden calf. And do you know what he asks God for? Lord, show me your glory. Elijah does much the same, just in different words. Elijah, after those great events on Mount Carmel, where he squared off with the prophets of Baal and God rained down his glory and fire and uh, swept up all of the water that had been doused on the altars, incinerated the altars, proved that not only was Elijah the true prophet of God, but that, that God was true God, that he was who he says he was. And yet after that great and glorious display of power for Elijah, that's not enough. He wants more. He tells the Lord, Lord, I've been so zealous for your work and for, your min- or for my ministry and for you, and, and I just feel like I'm the only one left. Lord, I, I want more. And yet for both of these men, do you know what God gives them? He doesn't give them more glory. He gives them his voice. To Moses, when he says, Lord, show me your glory, God says, God says I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will declare my name, the Lord, in your presence. To Elijah, God doesn't show up and, and make his glory manifest in, in an earthquake or in more fire or in, in a violent rushing wind. Instead, he manifests his glory in a gentle whisper. In that still, small voice. And it's this voice of God that sustained these two men throughout their ministries and all of the crosses that they would bear as they approached the heavenly glory, right? And even after these men enter glory and they come in glory and stand with Jesus on the mountain, what are these men interested in talking about? They're not interested in talking about the glory that they pined for while they were here in this world. They aren't interested in talking about about the glory that they now experience. What are they interested in talking about? Suffering. Jesus' suffering and death is the only thing that they want to talk about. So it is with Peter. Eight days prior to the transfiguration, Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah. 
But then he wants a more visibly glorious Lord and not, not a Lord who suffers and dies. He wants more visible glory for himself, not, not self-denial and cross-bearing and, and, uh, and suffering. And granted, he does catch a glimpse of that glory of Jesus on the mountain, but notice how quickly it dissipates, how quickly it disappears in that cloud. And what is Peter given? He's given the voice of God. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. It's fascinating when God speaks through that cloud what he says to Peter and to James and to John. He doesn't tell them to keep searching for the glory that they, that they saw on the mountain. He doesn't tell them to hyper-focus on the suffering that Christ had told them about. Instead, what God does is he points, the, points them to the center of his kingdom, to his very own son. He says, listen to this. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Peter, listen to Jesus. Even when he is preaching and teaching to you notions and ideas that seem very backwards to everything you understand, listen to Jesus when he is telling you things that seem undesirable and unwanted and inglorious. Listen to Jesus even when that voice is telling you that suffering is coming because what he is explaining to you is the way that my kingdom works, that first it's, first it's suffering, then it's glory. And when you are enduring that suffering as my disciple, it's that voice that you are listening to that will give you strength. It's that voice that you listen to that will uphold you. It's that voice of my son that will sustain you as you live and work and carry out your ministry in a kingdom that necessitates suffering before glory. And Peter came down that Mount of Transfiguration and he listened eventually. Right? Peter went on to, to carry out a, a relatively long ministry where he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus to a lot of people. And eventually, he did experience the suffering that Jesus predicted to the point where he was martyred under the wicked persecution of, of Emperor Nero. But even before Peter fully suffered and was fully martyred for his faith, do you know what he was most interested in, in talking about? Listen to Peter's own words here from his last will and testament from 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter's about to die. Jesus tells him this much. He's suffering immensely for the name of Christ. Glory is about to be his because of the inheritance that was given to him by being a child of God. And yet, what is the only thing that Peter wants to talk about? The words of Jesus. It's the only thing. He wants to continue encouraging people, men and women and children, to continue to listen to the voice of Jesus. And that's God's desire for you too this morning. To continue to listen to the voice of the Son of God, the Chosen One. Because it's only in listening to the voice of God that you can really begin to make sense of any of this stuff. It's only by listening to the voice of the Son of God that you're enabled to, to understand the way that the kingdom works, that, that it necessitates suffering before glory. It's only in listening to the voice of the Son of God that you begin to understand why Jesus had to endure suffering before entering, returning more to the glories of heaven. It's only listening to that voice that you understand that the way to glory is through suffering. 
by listening to the voice of Jesus, you understand why, why Jesus had to go through everything he told the disciples about the suffering, the rejection, the dying, the rising. It wasn't to win you a more glorious life before death. It wasn't to win you somehow a glorious life that avoided death. It was to win you a glorious life after death. And the only way to understand that is by listening to the voice of Jesus. By listening to the voice of Jesus, you also understand the things that you will have to endure on account of following Jesus. The self-denial, the cross-bearing, the suffering, it's all part of it. By listening to the voice of Jesus, you begin to understand. God enables you to understand that that suffering is a prerequisite for glory, that suffering actually serves a real and true purpose, that God uses suffering in your life to put his glory on display for others. He uses this suffering to show you that, that what is happening in this life is transitory. But the glory that's waiting for you is forever. By listening to the voice of the Son of God, do you know what Paul says that we have? He says it so clearly and beautifully. He says, he says we have hope. Hope. Hope of the glory that is waiting for us. The glory that we caught a glimpse of on the mountainside. The glory that is hidden in the suffering and dying on the cross in Golgotha of the Son of God. The glory that is solidified at Easter's empty tomb. That hope is real. That hope is yours. Hope of the glory that is waiting for you. And because that hope is ours, do you know what the Apostle Paul says we are? Therefore, since we have this hope, we are very bold. Bold in taking this voice of Jesus to other people so that the Spirit may set captive hearts free. Bold in taking the voice of Jesus to others so that through the Spirit they may listen to the voice of the Son of God and begin to make sense of the things that you already understand that they can begin to make sense like Peter of the suffering that they endure, of the cross-bearing that they will struggle under, that they will begin to understand the order of the kingdom. First the cross, then the crown. First suffering, then glory. It's the only way it works. It's the way God designed it. It's the way that your salvation was won. It's the way you live now. And contrary to, to all of the backwards ideas that people have about glory and suffering, that they, that they eschew all of the hardship, but, but they want and are fascinated by the glory, the, the fact that people want to be disciples of Jesus without, without ever being refined by any sort of hardship and trial, in spite of all of that, you all understand. You understand the way that the kingdom works. You understand the way that God designed it, the way that, that, that Christ desires that you live. Suffering, then glory. And now, now that you've listened to the voice of the Son of God, and you understand these things, God uses you as that, as that gentle whisper, that still small voice to bring Jesus' voice to others so that they may stop and listen too. Brothers and sisters, continue to listen to Jesus. Continue to listen to him as he continues to make you more and more like him, transforming you with ever-increasing glory that belongs to him. Keep listening to Jesus as he brings you closer to heaven.
even and especially through suffering. God grant that in his holy son's name. Amen.